Well, good morning. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Segi and Rochelle and the ABC Presbytery for the honor of sharing the word of the Lord together with you this morning. I also want to acknowledge our, my father in the faith, Thamma and Marolu Naidu. It's an honor to, um, for you to be here, and I would prefer that you preach. <laughs> I made the offer as Pastor Thamma walked in, but he desisted. So I've been tested in the matter of obedience as I stand to share the word of the Lord. Uh, forgive my visage. I might look a bit tired. We had a, a little bit of a crisis last night. My daughter fainted around about 8 p.m. She's had a severe flu for the past two or three days. And so we had to rush her to the hospital, etc. And we only got back, I think, 1 a.m. or thereabouts this morning. So um, don't consider the vessel discern the treasure. <laughs> and for the record, I only took five minutes to get ready. <laughs> Amen. But uh, yeah, there's warfare on many fronts and many things we have to contend with as we do God's work. And it's incumbent upon those who administrate the will of the Lord in any specific season, the word of God, that we be strong. So I appreciate Kevin's exhortation this morning. And to be very courageous, very strong, and very courageous. And the battles are many and numerous and multiple, and they come against us in various ways. But we have to develop strength against multiple attacks. We have to be very strong mentally, spiritually, and also strong relationally. I find that relational strength has become my strength. And um, I want to speak to those areas today. I'm in a straight betwixt two, in the language of Paul, Old King James, two messages. <laughs> um, so, but I just felt the leading of the Lord to focus on one specific aspect, and that is walking closely with your spiritual father. Everyone say, walk closely. Walk closely with your spiritual father, and with the idea of that closeness in how you walk fulfilling purpose. Everyone say purpose. So at the end of the day, we want God's purposes done. Uh, walking together or walking in close proximity with one's spiritual oversight is not an end in itself. It's there to accomplish a greater reality, a greater objective, and that is that God's purposes attendant with the relationship be done or be, be fulfilled. Amen? And so that's very, very important to to factor into our minds because sometimes when God establishes means to accomplish an end, you can so idolize the means that you never fulfill the end. You can so idolize the, the concept, the principle, or the medium that is instituted to accomplish a greater reality. But if your eye is not on the greater thing, you either idolize the means or you abuse the means or not position yourself within that means and not allow that to take you to the ultimate end or the intended end that that means was designed to accomplish. Now, all father-son relationships are designed to accomplish purpose. And for you and I, we live for that. Not so. Don't we live for the fact that God's purposes be done? We live for nothing else. My meat is to do the will of, of my father, of him that sent me, and to, to finish it. And so then we grab a hold of any principle 
that, he, that will foster our and fulfill our desire to that end, that God's purposes be done in the earth. And for me, the father-son wineskin is one of those critical elements that God has instituted within the fabric of the family of God in order that his purposes be done in the earth. The purposes of the Lord are filtered through a relationship. They are transmitted through a wineskin. And if you're positioned within that wineskin, not prioritizing purpose, you will not fulfill the intention for why God established that specific wineskin in the first place. So I want to begin, um, and time permitting, use a few case studies. Um, I, I love case studies, don't you? Amen. And I think uh, Dr. Sig is a master at this with his uh, allegorical interpretation of Old Testament realities. I think he takes stories and makes them contemporaneous, makes them so applicable to, to what, he, what, what, what persists today. And so we will try to do a few of that. But I want to kick off with Amos chapter 3 and verse 3. It's a well-known text. It's a very well-known scripture. And it reads thus in the King James, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Everyone say agreed. It's not a statement, it's a question. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? So you cannot walk with anybody until you are in absolute agreement with them. Agreement makes the walk purposeful. The issue of agreement will make the walk meaningful. Okay, And you cannot walk with someone with which you're not totally covenantally in agreement with. The NASB, however, frames it this way. The same verse. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Right? Do two men walk together unless they've made an, an appointment? The word agreed, King James, or appointment NASB, is the Hebrew word ya'ad, Y-A apostrophe A-D. Everyone say ya'ad. Okay, and the, mean, the meaning of this word is varied. There are various nuances to it, which I want to list and then attempt to apply in reference to father-son dynamics. Because a son must agree with his father. A son must make an appointment, and I speak symbolically, not naturally, must, must walk in such proximity with his spiritual father that there's absolute agreement and there's a defined end. There's a destination to be attained. There's a purpose to be done. There are things to be secured. Okay, So we walk purposefully. We, our walk is not arbitrary. It's not casual. It's not without objective. It's designed to attain a specific outcome. Okay, So the word ya'ad, if you're taking notes, there are about four or five nuances, but it means the following. To appoint, to summon, to engage. Everyone say engage. It also means to agree, as the King James translates it. It also means to assemble. So there's the idea of an assembling within the relationship. You can be in the father-son wineskin, yet not assembled into it. Some people just have fathers for political correctness or for affiliation purposes, a sense of belonging. You need to point out or, de or locate who your father is in Christ. But the assembly is into the purpose for which the relationship was designed. 
Okay? And so it has to be functional. It has to be purposeful. So it also means this. I'll just list the, the meanings, then I'll explain one or two of them because of time. It also means to be allotted to an appointed time. And with this, there is the idea of urgency attached to a time period. An allotment to a specific time or urgency attached to the time period. It also means, it, takes, it can take the meaning of appointing or designating someone to be married. Everyone say married. In terms of the way it's used, so the idea of intimate covenant loyalty and joining is associated with the word can two walk together unless they be a... Agreed. It's, it's that dwelling together, that permanency in relationship that is alluded to here. Also, uh, it means to meet somebody at an appointed time. To meet somebody at an appointed time. So, those are the varied nuances of the word. I'm going to unpack a few of them. Everyone say covenantal intimacy. So, can two walk together unless they are intimate, intimately covenantal? The relationship cannot be loose. It has to be intensely deep. It has to be like Ruth said to Naomi, I will never leave you. I will cling to you. May nothing but death separate us. And may the Lord God do worse to me if I, if I leave you except by death. Okay, so it's very enduring in terms of its trust. It's not fleeting. It's not light. It's not loose. It's intensely strong when you discover it, okay? Because it has attendant with it the idea of it serving the purposes of the Lord. If the purposes of the Lord are noble, so should the conduit to accomplish that purpose be. The relationship should be noble. The relationship should be uh, enduring, should be, should be intimate, should be covenantal. Fathers love sons. Sons love fathers. Sons honor fathers. Fathers honor sons. There's mutuality of accord and respect and the sacredness that governs the relationship. All of these things should be intact. I think to violate this order will, is a serious infringement because it represents heaven. Remember when the prodigal son returned? His confession in repentance to his father was, I have not sinned against you, but I have sinned against heaven. I have violated, and what the Bible says, let his will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. So whenever you reference heaven, you reference purpose. You reference the will of God being done. So in his, in his violation of the relationship, he realized, I have not just violated you personally, relationally, but I have almost aborted purpose that heaven wants to bring to bear upon the, upon the earth. So it's very, very important that we factor these things um, into our minds. How many people here prioritize the purposes of the Lord? Come on, let me see your hands. You want God's will be, to be done. Okay? And so in reference to father-son dynamics, we then hold very sacred that relationship because it is designed to accomplish purpose. It is designed to fulfill uh, uh, an ultimate end. The word ya'ad, can two walk together unless they be agreed, like I said, also denotes an intended destination. 
to make an appointment to arrive at a predetermined outcome. For us, that predetermined outcome is the fullness of the nature of the stature that belongs to Christ. The intent for the relationship is to mature sons into the fullness of Christ. Is that Christ be fully formed in? In us, that Christ be fully formed in each one of us. If you are a son in relationship to a father and you don't understand the destination, you will have the wrong expectations for the relationship. Right? You, will, you, will, you will have wrong uh, anticipations for what does this relationship afford to me? How can it benefit me? So any son coming into a father-son relationship must understand I am on the potter's wheel. I'm going to be shaped into the fullness of the stature that belongs to, to Christ. If need be, I will be corrected. I will be rebuked. I will be taught. I will be shaped. Tell your neighbor, understand the outcome. So then when you are rebuked, you don't, you don't react carnally because you know the outcome. Why go into the relationship not understanding what it's designed to produce? So when, when, when aspects attendant with the relationship are meted out, there's a sense of a freedom to easily receive and, 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 and manage it. Why? Because you are fully convinced that what, of what this relationship is designed to produce. Amen. So tell your neighbor your offense days are over. <laughs> right? So be not offended. <laughs> yeah? Offense must leave the building, hallelujah, amen, at any level. I know we as fathers teach these things to our congregations, but I have found some of the most offense-prone um, people are leaders, okay? <laughs> and everybody said, <laughs> no amens for this one, amen. And um, I want to encourage you to develop an offense-proof life. Great peace, Psalm 100, what's it, 19 verse 185 or thereabouts, says, Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall by any means offend them. It's possible to live an offense-proof life. Everyone say, Great peace. So, great peace have them that love thy law, and nothing shall by any means oh, offend them. The degree to which you are offended indicates the degree to which you are immature. So the ease with which you become offended at the cutting knife of your father in your life proves that you are still on the road to maturity. Amen? Hallelujah. Okay, let's go on to something to which you can say amen to. <laughs> amen. So we must understand the outcome. Um, what I want to talk about is the issue of timing. The appointed time can to walk together unless they understand the appointed time. The word Ya'ad has this nuance. There's the issue of, of urgency. You know, it's very, very difficult to walk with someone who does not have perception of the time as you have. And so your perception of the urgency of a matter in a particular kairos ranks highly prioritized in your mind. And to walk with somebody else that does not have that priority, it's difficult. So the walk will not be in step, will not be uh, uh, together. 
but there will be dis, a disparate, uh, no synergy, no synchronization, if you would, in how we proceed forward because we have different realities on our minds in reference to what is God's present demand for the season and that attendant to our relationship. Okay? So, for example, uh, let me just read one scripture. In, in Romans 13, it says the following in, from verse 11. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep. For now salvation is near, near to us than when we believe, first believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So laying aside the deeds of darkness and putting on the armor of light is an activity to be prioritized. Lay aside the deeds of darkness and clothe yourself with light, with righteousness, with transparency, with holiness, with circumspect living. That is the demand, but it's prefaced by this statement, do this knowing the time. Your knowledge of the time and the urgency of the time will, will result in certain behavioral patterns. You cannot expect the behavioral pattern if there's ignorance of the times. And so sometimes when God opens our minds to how urgent the time we are living in is, that will provoke us to a certain behavioral pattern of lifestyle. Okay? Now in terms of father-son walking together, it's difficult for a father to walk together with his son when his son cannot see what he sees as what is urgent, as what is necessary. That's why it's always very important to keep one's ear attuned to the word that your father speaks. Because in that, you get a view to what he sees. His word to you unveils to you his sight. When a father speaks, it's revelation to a son of where and what the father is looking at. And so the, the word he speaks will upgrade your perception. And when you see as your father sees, you'll be then begin to prioritize the things that are most preeminent on the heart of your father. Okay? But blindness is the biggest hindrance to walking in synchrony with one's spiritual father. Remember it was, I think it was Elisha who, who prayed to the Lord to, for his eyes to be opened when they were surrounded by the, I think it was the Assyrians or one of the enemies, right? So the father sees a reality that a potential son cannot see. The father's behavior is vastly different to the son's based upon the, the reality of the father's perspective. And it's my desire. Come on, would like to see as your father sees. That must be our path. We want to see as our Father sees, for then we will prioritize what He prioritizes, and we can walk together in agreements. And by that, fulfill the purposes of the Lord. Amen? It's very important. Uh, this forum knows Haggai 2 very well. Haggai sorry, 1 verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people say the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be, to be built. And the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses while this house lies desolate? Here, yeah, the lack of the understanding of the times and the urgency of God's priority 
to build the corporate temple made the people's present activity obsolete and irrelevant from heaven's perspective. The people's activity was paneled house. God's priority was corporate temple. Failure to understand what heaven demand in that specific season, the blindness or the lack of perception, the lack of sight into the present demand of God led to a prioritization of the wrong activity. You can do the wrong thing with zeal and accomplish nothing in the spirit. Right? Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain that, that build it. Everyone say that build it. That's the frightening part of that verse. They build it. <laughs> They're still building something. <laughs> but at the end of the day, God says, vanity in vain, uh, not referable to anything of my will in the heavens. Right? It's total vanity. And I've come to the place in my life recently where I'm willing to shut down certain emphases, certain activity, if it does not bear reference to the, the, the priority of God released from the heavens, and that also, that priority expressed through the leadership of one spiritual father in Christ. Okay? You know, the church and spiritual sons generally including you and I, are far too ambitious. <laughs> yeah, everyone say that's, that's you. <laughs> far too ambitious. And I'll talk more to that um, in a moment. But um, another verse I was going to lodge in your spirit before we go on is 2 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 5. We'll see this word ya'ad is used here in this context. Amasa went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which had been appointed to him. David sent this man out to gather the men of Judah in three days, but the scripture says he delayed longer, did not fulfill the command of David, his spiritual father in Christ. There was a delay. And, and I'm finding out the issue of lag or drag is too prevalent in our dispositions of obedience. There's no lack of urgency. It's like pastors, like Pastor Segi always says, are some of the most busiest people on the planet. We can't get people to meetings. We can't get them to prioritize kingdom agenda. And these are leaders I'm talking about. Never mind congregations. And if we display the inability or the lack of priority and the element of drag or lag in our obedience, dragging our feet... You know, um, what irritated me as an educator, I taught for 17 years at high school. And what used to irritate me at the changeover of classes from period to period is when a class walks in and some walk like this. <laughs> some learners, you know, walk like this. And I would shout, I said, pick up your feet and walk, you know, be purposeful, you know. But this, and, you know, some pastors are like this in the spirit. It's like... <laughs> It's like you're moving, but you're dragging your feet. Get some vavavum. <laughs> Get some oomph. Get some zeal, some zest, some passion in your pursuit for the things of the Lord. Amen. Tell you never be energized. Amen. And when we say can two walk together unless they be agreed, this word yaad, it, it literally in terms of its usage in 2 Samuel 20 indicates that there should be no delayed obedience or delaying longer 
than the impress of an urgency brought to bear on you by your spiritual father in Christ. Amen. And so this word is going to challenge us this morning to reprioritize passions, to reprioritize purposes. It's good to see my friends Justin and Reddy there all the way from Port Alfred. Welcome. I think they're on holiday here today, so they're present. Amen. So it's very, very, very important. So are we going to agree more? Come on. Are we going to agree more with our spiritual fathers? Amen. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? Now, this will demand that you um, prioritize the purposes of the Lord attendant with your, with your spiritual father in Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, Paul said this to Timothy, You, I like the word you in the book of Timothy. Paul uses it often. You, O man of God. Uh, you flee youthful lust. Um, and he almost, when I read the book of 2 Timothy, it's, um, Paul is saying, everybody can do their own thing, but my requirements for you are different to what persists for everybody else. Let them go, let them do what they want to do, but you, my son. Okay? And um, he would often use this word. Someone bought me a commentary for my 21st birthday on the book of 2 Timothy by John Stott. Uh, I had a bed full of gifts that night when I opened up all my gifts. Renaina was still courting. I recall in my, in my parents' room opening up gifts. And this book wrapped up caught my eye. It was a little commentary on the book of 2 Timothy by John Stott. I got reading it the next day. I still have it in my library today. And I learned this principle from reading John Stott's commentary. How God's expectations vested or expressed through Paul for Timothy were vastly different from what persisted um, in the general jurisdiction of his day. And I, I really want to encourage you. I, I think Dr. Segi has spoken to you about an extraordinary standard or something of that nature, a different culture that we need to express um, that is uh, more than what persists out there. In 2 Timothy 3.10, he would say this to his son. You, everyone say you. He says, now you have followed. And he would list nine things that Timothy followed in reference to Paul. And he said, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. I just want to focus on the first three. You have followed my teaching, my conduct, and my purpose. Then he would mention faith, love, perseverance, sufferings, etc. But the first three are very important. Um, I call it TCP. You know the medicine TCP? It's good for you, right? So you have followed my teaching, you have followed my conduct, and you have followed my purpose. Preeminently, a, a son should first of all fo follow his father's doctrine, his father's teaching. In the order of the sequential listing in this verse, I believe teaching is ranked more than anything else. It's doctrine first, because that doctrine is in which grace is located that's designed to fashion the nature of Christ in you. Okay, So you have to follow teachings very religiously, very rigorously, um, 
Pastor Tom was doing a, a series now on priesthood. I listened to it most times, but the Monday evening, I would know what he taught on the Sunday morning. All right? As soon as it's uploaded to the website, I have it in my car playing the first uh, few sessions. Um, that, he, that is, Why do I do that? Why does it play over and over? What am I trying to do? The relationship must fulfill purpose, but the bedrock of us agreeing and walking together in synergy has first got to do with doctrine. And a son must follow the doctrine or the teachings of his father. Amen. And you guys at ABC are extremely blessed to be able to be here every single week to receive doctrine. Amen. This group is a very noble group. Amen. You have nobility about you. You're like the more noble-minded Bereans that engage God's word in a consistent fashion. And I want to encourage you that rigor must persist. That diligence must always be kept in place. If ever the relationship is to accomplish purpose, which is third on the list, doctrine, teaching must be first in place. You have followed my teaching. Secondly, my, my conduct or my manner of life or my behavior. And in Paul's mind, Paul was literally saying this to Timothy. What I taught you, you could see in my life. You did not follow my teachings, but you observed my pattern of lifestyle, my behavior. Right? And you, you know that us as leaders don't only impart doctrine, but we also impart our very own souls. As Paul in another place said, we did not impart to you the gospel of God only, but our very own souls. And let this be an encouragement to you who lead households of faith too. You don't only impart by what you teach, you impart by who you are. Right? You impart by who you are. And if there's any disconnect between the word you espouse with your lips and the life you live with your life, right, the flow of impartation of grace to your sons would be negated. Okay? It, it would be minimalized or maybe reduced completely because you impart by lifestyle. Principles espoused verbally must be lived. Okay? Pastor Thomas said something recently at the start of this new series, something to the effect that the more you obey principles, um, ending P-L-E, principle, uh, truth, the more you obey principles, you should obey them to the place where they make you a principality, a P-A-L, right? So the principles learned, taught, must be imbibed in a lifestyle that make you an authority in your person by what has been taught. Okay? And he said something to the effect that when you obey a principle, a truth, P-L-E ending, that you can deliver yourself. But when you become the principality by virtue of your mastery of the principles, you then have the power to deliver whole jurisdictions. Because now you have become that principle vested or represented in a physical body. Okay? And I want to encourage you in terms of what Dr. Segi said earlier, that we must master principles that will make us authoritative principalities in our jurisdictions. Okay? Make us authoritative principalities in our jurisdiction. Melchizedek is, is Malki, meaning, Malki meaning king, Zedek, Righteousness, my king is righteous, or king of, of righteousness.
but he's also king of Salem, meaning peace. But before he rules Salem, peace, he rules a principle, righteousness. He's first king of righteousness. He masters a principle before ruling a space. So your mastery of the principle will cause you to rule a jurisdiction or a sphere. And this is where one's metron or spherical influence can grow jurisdictionally, where you become so strong in your representation of the principle. You've become it. You have become it. And wherever you go, the authority associated with that principle comes to vest in you. Many people want to take the earth, but we have not mastered this earth. The more you master the thing privately, your mastery of the thing in you makes you authoritative to take the jurisdiction all around you. Okay, so, so, so personal mastery of many things is going to become all the more important um, today. Okay? Philippians 2 verse 19 says the following. Listen carefully. Philippians 2 verse 19 says the following. I had hoped in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I might be encouraged when I learn of your condition. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Now Paul made an amazing statement about Timothy. He said, I have no one else. For him, it was a singular Timothy. For spiritual fathers today, it would be a corporate man. Timothy can be a corporate entity. You know, where we can say, I have no one like this group. I have no one like this collective of sons. And part of Timothy's, of what of Timothy impressed Paul was, he will genuinely be concerned. Everyone say genuine concern. So he's writing to the Philippians and say, as I am concerned for you, my son Timothy has an equal concern for you. But his is not a front. He is not parading anything. He is not acting nor pretending. His concern for you is as genuine as mine. Okay? He has a son walking in agreement with his. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? Then he said this, everybody else, they all, the others, they all seek their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven worth. How that, listen carefully, I'm reading from the NASB. You know his proven worth, how that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Notice the statements. He served with me like a child Serving his father. So I am over him in Christ, Paul is saying. Right? I'm ranked above him for function. He's my son in Christ. But Paul says this. He served me. Everyone say he served me. But he says he served with me. He makes two seemingly contrary statements all in the same breath. So any spiritual son that serves a spiritual father serves alongside him from God's vantage point. From the earth's arrangement, it's one above the other for functional effectiveness, not for qualitative superiority of one over the other. We know these things, right? But from heaven's perspective, the two are standing together fulfilling my purpose. But my challenge to us is the son must understand that to serve with 
I need to serve. To serve with Him, I need to serve Him. Huh? To serve with Him, I need to serve Him. The ABC family is very familiar with uh, second man principles. It's one of the lessons in ABC level one. And the issue of Joyada, um, serving the purposes of God in a young king, Joash. Remember? Right? And we know how he served him. How he strengthened himself. He strengthened leaders. He strengthened the people. He gave him a copy of the testimony of the law, etc. Right? He made him strong in terms of his disposition as king. And yet he was the second man. Yeah? He was the second man. And I like what Dr. Segi said in the note there. He had no ambition to become first man. <laughs> His whole objective was to serve. You see, it's not the man you serve. Get the man out of your head. It's purposes of God vested in and through the individual. That is your priority. Right? So my commitment to a spiritual father is to the person, yes, we love we honor, we treat sacredly. But at the bedrock of our thinking is, in terms of this arrangement, God's will must be done in the earth. And unfortunately, it will take great humility on your part to have this realization. The will of heaven is vested with fathers. The will of God is vested with fathers. You will have to die unto yourself if you think God's going to start something new with you. Get that out of your thinking right now. Huh? Tell your neighbor, die today. <laughs> we are too ambitious to be the pioneers of something that got our name, our brand on, when God has put us in an arrangement simply to foster and facilitate already established purposes vested in fathers that we have to simply facilitate and push. This is easy too because it takes great pressure off you. I would prefer the latter than the former. Hallelujah. I often joke, I say, my job, I think I'm a teacher in Christ. I'm not an apostle, I know that. I'm not a prophet, I know that. I think I'm more of a teacher than anything else. And teachers come third on the list, not so. I'm in a safe zone. It's first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. I don't have to do much to pray and fast to ask what is God saying. I just listen to apostles and prophets. My role as a teacher is simply to consolidate, explain, make clear, whatever, amplify. Hallelujah. I mean, why go for what these guys sweat for? And the attendant sufferings? <laughs> Always say, don't be too quick to label yourself apostle. Because there's a level of warfare that comes with that label. For which, if you're not called as one, you enlist for a warfare for which you are not prepared. And there could be collateral damage. Amen. So I'm in a safe zone. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. So he served me, but he served with me. He's got genuine concern for the welfare of the Philippians. He does not seek his own interest. Timothy. Joy does serve the purposes of God in, in King. Joash. And when he died, God instructed that he be buried with the kings. He's not a king from the earth's domain. But when the man dies, as a second man, God instructs, let him be buried with the kings. Because from heaven's perspective, he was a king. You don't need titles to fulfill functions. Amen. 
just learn the humble way and do what God has called you to do in quietness when nobody sees. Jehoiada means God knows. The word Jehoiada means God knows. And sometimes you're fulfilling functions that doesn't receive the accolade nor the recognition of men on the earth. But there is a God in heaven which will accord you kingship by virtue of your disposition. Amen. Uh, one of the biggest things to prevent grace reception is a spirit of pride. But it takes great humility to function as a son. I'm going to challenge you because, you see, the father-son dynamic can become romantic and end there. <laughs> Full of love, inward-looking, self-serving, totally focused on the individuals and never trans, uh, uh, never go to the next level to fulfill the function that is attendant with that relationship. Amen. Anybody love Dr. Segan Rochelle? Anybody? Miss your hands? Anybody? Okay, if you don't, we pray for you right now. <laughs> yes, there's romance. When I say romance, I'm, I'm talking about dispositions of love, honor, respect. All of that must be in place. But the next level is to go to fulfill purpose. Because you can camp there. Right? You can camp there. But you've got you to go to the next level where, why has God put me in this relationship? Yes, the ultimate destination purpose is to form Christ in me, but also beyond that, there are aspects of divine purpose that God has vested in him or in them as fathers in Christ. And as a son, I need to clearly understand that, clearly understand the urgency by which he functions, his understanding of the times, etc. And I need to die to my own opinions, own desires, own ambitions, uh, Die to my own will, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus taught us this. And bring the entirety of my personal life and ministry in, in, in alignment to the relationship designed to accomplish the greater objective. Okay? Everyone say purpose. I want to demonstrate this from the life of Moses, just quickly, because of time. In Exodus 3, in verse 6, God said this. This is God's word. Um, to Moses. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. Verse 10, therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you might bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So God does not Come to Moses and say to him first, You are the man of power for the hour. <laughs> you're the man. In Trinidad, they will say, You're the man. <laughs> I'm going to use you, my hands on you. You're going to be a great deliverer. Doesn't say any of that first. If you back up in verse 6, his introduction to Moses is Listen, guy, before we talk destiny, understand who your fathers are. I am the God of your father, Abraham. I am the God of your father, Isaac. I am the God of your father, Jacob. Then later says, now I'm going to send you. You can never understand ministry unique to you, specific to you, in your lifetime, until you can connect that assignment to already established principles or purposes vested in spiritual fathers. You cannot do your own thing. You don't have any ambition 
outside of, fulfilling already clearly established purposes of God given to apostolic spiritual fathers that have custody of specific aspects of divine purpose in your respective jurisdictions that you must understand and any other ambition in you that seeks anything else must die. Unfortunately, it has to die today. Some of you are going to be delivered today <laughs> from unnecessary things that take up so much time, so much energy, but at the end of the day are not fulfilling purposes of God vested in, in spiritual fathers. In Psalm 105 verse 9, God, the, the, the scripture, you know, there are many Psalms which paint an historical account of God's gracious dealings with Israel, particularly in their wilderness journeys. Psalm 105 is one of those, and verse 9 says, He made a covenant with Abram and his oath to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob for a statute and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. Verse 26, he sent his servant Moses and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed wondrous acts among them and the miracles in the land of Ham. So before referencing wondrous acts that's done through the hand of Moses, God references the context in which those acts were done. They were done in the context of him making covenants with patriarchal spiritual fathers in the persons of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And when that is in place and understood, the man down the line as a son who is Moses, in reference to that, can do wondrous acts, mighty deeds, because everything Moses is doing is referable to a prophetic promise vested in the, in the fathers. Now, to understand this more clearly, if you read the psalm further down, in verse 37, it reads thus. Who, who would like to be Moses if God gave you the opportunity? Anybody? No takers for Moses' place. Anybody? <laughs> who would like to lead 600,000 initially out of Egypt and then more than 2 million later on? Anybody would like a mega church? Come on. <laughs> I think Moses was a great leader, you know, to do what he did. I think, wow. And a group of rebellious people at that. My God, you know. And the Bible says this, but you know, mighty acts and signs and wonders were wrought through his hand. Right? If, if Moses had a Facebook page today with water coming out of a rock, wow, Facebook would have crashed because of all the likes and hits. You know, he would have been a very famous man by charismatic Pentecostal standards. But see what this verse says. Verse 37 says, He brought them out with the silver and gold. Among the tribes there was no one who who stumbled, Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to illumine by night. They asked and he brought quail and he satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and water flowed out and it ran in the dry places like a river. And verse 42 tells you why. It says because he remembered his holy word to his servant Abraham. It's not about Moses or Moses' eligibility, anointing, or power. Everything Moses is doing, and he's anointed greatly for the same, for one specific reason, God is remembering an oath to Abraham. 
And Moses is of savvy enough, he has a savvy enough to connect his private initiatives to purposes vested in a, in a father years before. And in his day, he accesses and harnesses such grace that makes him successful in what God has called him to do simply because what he does is an expression or an outcome or the answer to purposes already established in fathers before him. This is what John 4 says when Jesus said, you can enter into the labors of others and reap where you have not sown. Right? You can enter into the labors of, of, of others. Now, um, a few case studies can demonstrate the principle again, variously, but because of time, I just want to focus, I'm going to leave that and just focus on one or two aspects in reference to this. You must die to your own ambition. You must, we, we must die to our own inclination, our own private um, agendas, and do nothing else but seek to fulfill the vast purposes of God stewarded by our apostolic spiritual fathers. For that, it will demand great obedience. We have to actively support them in various ways. And I don't think I need to go through the various ways in which we can honor and support spiritual fathers. I want to remind you when you do, you serve them, but you're serving with them. You will be buried with the kings. You in your day will be greatly anointed. You see, at one stage, Paul said, did say to Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Remember, he said, do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry. There is Timothy's ministry, but it's never ever disconnected from the teaching of Paul, from the purpose of Paul. It's simply an expression and outcome of everything vested within the apostle, the apostle Paul. And there's a grace, there's an anointing vested there that if you access it, will make you hugely uh, successful in what God has called you to do. I have discovered in my own life, whenever I prioritize things, uh, purposes of God that are unique to my spiritual father in Christ, I have the greatest success. Because it's not me. It's about another dynamic that is brought to bear on me. And what I do, I can bring water from a rock now because I'm fulfilling purposes that God said to a spiritual father. Amen. And so there's the long way and there's a shortcut, brethren. Some shortcuts are good. <laughs> Amen. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to require that you die unto your, you die unto yourself. In terms of um, this, there's a thought that's been always, I think I learned it here at ABC, but since has really grown in my spirit. How that the obedience of a son, when he understands these things, and can walk in synchrony with his spiritual father in reference to purpose. The obedience of the son can really have a positive effect on the father. And take the father himself to a new level. Right? Disobedience has the adverse opposite effect. But obedience from a son can literally positively affect the, and, and, and give expression to the purposes of God vested within a father. And there are multiple examples of this. Time permitting, let me just do one or two. Um, a standard example for me would be Esther and Mordecai. I think the book of Esther should be called the book of Mordecai. And I think the book of Ruth should be called the book of Naomi. <laughs> 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 
They're named after the respective sons, but they are spiritual fathers in both books behind the scenes, literally determining outcomes of the books. Right? And, and true sons, when they, beca they become the face, true fathers do remain invisible, so we can understand that. They are behind the scenes. But when the son is frontal, the son must die to his own will, die to his own ambition, and literally fulfill the intentions of the, of the father. So Mordecai would say to um, Esther, go to the king. And she would protest by saying, nobody comes there unsummoned. It's certain death if he does not approve. But then she makes this, this well-known statement um, that I will go to the king, Esther 4.16, I will go to the king and if I perish, I perish. What the girl was saying is this, you are my father in Christ. I will walk with you, I will agree with you and we walk in synergy together to accomplish God's purpose. But she realizes that this for me, that's going to require my death. And I'll be willing to obey to the point of, of, of death to myself, death to my own ambition, death to the prospect of a continuance of being queen in this land with all of the benefits that come with it. But your word is far more important to me. And while I don't understand all the parameters, you remember when, 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 when Mordecai learned of Haman's plot, he put sackcloth and ashes and outside the king's court at the gates there, remember, he mourned and he wept and he fasted. Right? And she sent word to him saying, change your clothes. Right? And then he had to educate her. No, girl. No, no, no. This is serious times here. There's a reality that you cannot see. An urgency of the times that you're unaware of. My physical disposition is indicative of, of a serious satanic plot afoot to annihilate the, the people of God in 127 provinces from India all the way to Ethiopia. The issues were huge. So, my son, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, he's saying to her, my son, you don't ask me to change my garments. You change your garments in reference to what you see in me as a priority. Right? Adopt my passion. And who knows that God has called you to the kingdom for such a time as this. My son, I've been there for you all the while. You remember when she was in the harem? The Bible says he came daily to see how she was. Right? There was, the, uh, there was an active and functional father-son relationship. Yes, she was being prepared by the harem officials, but she was being more prepared spiritually by the intervention of Mordecai to her. And he said this to her, you better make representation to your husband. He said, well, let me take the chance that she makes this statement, if I perish... Let me perish. In other words, she's saying, I would rather be obedient to your fatherly view, your fatherly counsel, your fatherly instruction, even to the point in my mind where your actions demand of me death to my destiny, death to my passion, death to whatever I hold as, as priority, but I would rather, you know, if, if I read into her mind, she's saying this, I would rather die obeying God than to live using disobedience as a methodology for my survival. That's what she's saying. 
If I must die, I must die, but let it, let it be said of me, let my legacy be said that I died in the process of obeying the voice of a father. Why? To fulfill divine purpose attached to the relationship. This is serious stuff. I also speak in fear and trembling here because I know every word will be tested. <laughs> yeah? Every word will be, will be tested. It's like Naomi saying to Ruth, go to the place where he lies. Uncover his feet. Position yourself there. In Hebrew culture, that was a command of certain death. It was the acts of either prostitutes trying to solicit a man or entice a man, or it was also a virgins trying to uh, marry a good man. In Hebrew culture, if the man, after he awoke, after seeing the girl at his feet, disapproved of her, he was authorized to order her death. So when Naomi said to Ruth, go and mark the place where he lies and cover his feet and lie down, she was saying, my girl, my son, in the Lord, I'm sending you to your death. Are you prepared to die for this? Let me just say this, no son who is prepared to die to his own ambition does die. <laughs> he lives. And at the end of the day, the will of the Lord is accomplished. The will of the Lord thrives for everybody concerned. You know, the book of Esther has got ten chapters. First nine are devoted to the drama of the story. But ten is the objective that the story seeks to accomplish. You must always read the last chapter of every book before you start. <laughs> so you know how things turn out, right? And I think there's only four. There's only four verses in chapter ten. It's all about Mordecai. Everything's about Mordecai. How he becomes prime minister. And he uses his sway and influence to benefit the people of God scattered in all the provinces throughout the world, wherever there was a Jew. This man is raised to significant influence. Not so. David's obedience in seeing to how his brothers were. Remember? David had no intentions of killing a giant the day he killed Goliath. He didn't wake up one day and say, now today a giant's falling. Right? What was the objective? The objective was, I will fulfill the instructions of a father to see how brothers are doing. Jesse's instructions was, take this food and see to the welfare of your brothers. Now, in fulfilling the purposes of the father, you also have to have high regard for brothers. You can never ever fulfill purpose and violate brotherly relationships in the process. You're going to shoot yourself in the foot. Nothing proceeds except from the strength of very solid brotherly relationships. So as he goes to see to the welfare of the brother, God unveils the giant before him. But the object of that day wasn't to kill a giant. The sole thing in David's mind was, I will obey my father. And he was about 17 years old, not so, more or less. Isn't it irresponsible of Jesse? To send a teenager or thereabouts to a battlefield where the whole of the Israeli army is scared of a, one who's taunting them for 40 days. Would you think they're not irresponsible of Jesse? But sometimes a father sees and he has perspective of things. And sometimes when a father sends a son to his death, so to speak, that becomes the doorway for purpose and blessing. But when David kills Goliath, Jesse comes into blessing. 
The obedience of a son brings, elevates the father. And his house is exempt from taxes. Right? There's an elevation of the father. When, when, when Abraham um, was obedient to God to take Isaac to sacrifice him on the mount. The, the, if you read the account there, there are two references where you'll see this phrase, and the two of them walked on together. I'll give you quickly, just for your own reference. It's Genesis 22, verse 6, and Genesis 22, verse 8. Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac. He took a fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Can two walk together unless they be agreed, right? In verse 8, after uh, well, verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Yeah, I am my son. And behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The son must be saying, Yeah, <laughs> I know exactly what's going on here, Papa. <laughs> At that stage, I mean, Isaac's not a fool, right? He was at least, they say, about 30 years old or more here. He knew exactly. He could, he, he was a master at allegorical interpretation like Dr. Segi. He said, I know this lamb you're talking about is me. <laughs> this is, I am, I'm the application here. You're going to put me in the altar and you're going to kill me. And the rest of that verse is, and so the two of them walked on together. At that stage, you could have said, Bye-bye, Dad. I'm going down. So I know exactly what you're up to here. <laughs> you know? But it takes a son who can walk on together with his father to the place where he's willing to lay down his own life in total trust for what the father says, leads, instructs, intimates, advises. We often applaud Abram for his obedience. But equal applause must go to Isaac. This is the joint obedience of father and son. Can two walk together? Unless they be agreed. And you know, before he killed the boy, or intending to kill the boy, God stopped him and said, Stop, you know, Abram, Abram, I know what's in your heart. Behold, there's a, a ram caught in the thicket. And Abram gave God a name and he says, Jehovah Hira, the Lord is provision. There was a revelation brought to a father premised on the son's obedience. What the son obeyed positioned the father to gain sight into certain aspects of God's nature, which outside of Isaac's cooperation, maybe Abraham would never have come to that place. Methuselah was born to Enoch, it says. Not so. And it says that Enoch was 65 years old when Methuselah was born. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah. And he lived for the rest of the time. 300 years. He lived for 300 years. The way I read that is this. That his walk with God was heightened after Methuselah was born. And Enoch walked with God after him beget Methuselah. Methuselah means when he is dead, it shall be sent. So Methuselah embodies the whole idea of death that prepares you for apostolic sending. 
which you, nobody can be sent until you die to your, yourself, die to your own inclinations, etc. But it literally brought Enoch into a 300-year walk with God. 300 denotes oneness, as you know. Intimacy, Enoch's walk with God is heightened after, and the Bible says, and after that, and he beget other sons and daughters. It's like there are other sons and daughters, and there's Methuselah. <laughs> Which one are you? <laughs> do you want to be one of the others, or do you want to be that kind of son who, when he's on the scene, positions everybody, particularly your spiritual father and yourself, for more profound penetrations into God's nature and purpose. But it's not only Abraham that saw that, that saw the Lord's provision. Who was right there but still tied up? <laughs> Who's still on the altar? The boy's still on the altar tied up, but what is he hearing? The Lord's provision. He's seeing as his father sees when he can position himself in total obedience unto death to the word of his father. That's the principle. Repeat after me. You can see as your father sees. When you position yourself in total obedience. Unto death. To the instructions of your father. Isaac never ever had a provision problem in his life. Even in famine this man can dig wells and water flows. He plants seed in famine and the Bible says in the same year he reaps a hundredfold. But the, the, the experiences of the benefits in Isaac's life were premised upon his complete sacrificial obedience to the instruction of his father. Amen.